This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. Today, James Hesteroy visits Eric Jones and Sinta Fabrina to discuss the enigmatic Indonesian preacher, A'a Gim. Well, welcome again to another episode of Southeast Asian Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with us in studio is our special visitor, um, Jim Hesteroy. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Very good to be here. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. We'll uh, introduce him in a second, uh, tell you a little bit about him. I want to introduce another guest and familiar face to the Center for Southeast Asian Studies, but Sinta Fabrina, uh, an MA graduate student, and she runs our... Indonesian uh, Visitors Program, PKPI. Uh, welcome in the studio, Sinta. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for... Thank you. <laughs> we were happy to have you. Um, we, uh, we, just, uh, we just had Jim on campus, gave a great uh, talk, um, partly based on his, his, his uh, awesome book, Rebranding Islam, Piety, Prosperity, and Self-Help uh, Guru, Stanford 2015. Um, be sure to give us a kickback when you're all these all these hits, the, all these these new sales you're going to get from this. Comes yeah, I think I right? got about two cents per book, so I'll be sure to keep you guys in mind. I'll get an endowment going. You can expect about five cents, I think. <laughs> but it's a, it's an award runner up for the uh, Geertz Prize in uh, Anthropology of Religion. Um, Jim or James is a, is a professor uh, of anthropology, but in the Department of Religion at uh, at Emory University, and he's a weir here with us uh, on campus. Um, so your your the subject of your of your uh, book, the, the main character is uh, this individual that all Indonesians would know, but maybe our, the rest of our audience wouldn't. Uh, is Aagim, A A G Y M is the uh, is the shortened version. Um, for our Western audience, how do how do we contextualize Aagim and who who is he? Yeah, thank you for having me. So if I think about how to make Aagim this kind of pop preacher in Indonesia accessible to an American audience. Here's how I would describe it. I think of Aagim as a combination of about three pop figures in America. Aagim has the branding acumen of Oprah Winfrey, uh. the <laughs> command of a media empire. He has a kind of Islamic prosperity gospel of Joel Osteen, who's known as the smiling preacher um, based out of Houston Lakewood Church, a mega church preacher in the kind of new prosperity gospel variety here in the U.S., and then also I would put in there kind of Dr. Phil. And Dr. Phil, mm. who had been made famous by Oprah Winfrey, was known for his tough love and for his certain kind of psychological take on life, on love. And so I think Aagim in an Indonesian context really has a little bit of everything in that regard. So at the end of Suharto's New Order, you had a privatization and a proliferation of media technology, specifically and especially in the TV industry. And so Aagim had a tremendous command of an audience. When he was a kid, for example, he would win speeches, a kind of speech contests. Okay. Um, he would also see he was a great orator, of course, and then also would play music and sing songs. His father, for example, um, would bring him up on eight tracks of, oddly enough, um, John Denver. And so when it comes karaoke time, he's always asking me to do John Denver Country Roads. Um, and then in the same context you have in post-Suharto Indonesia, this moment in the early Reformasi period, uh, especially 1980, 1998 through the early 2000s, where there was a new hope in Indonesia, this hope that corruption was slowly coming to an end, that you didn't need to have a, a total network, and that you could actually, in a sense of kind of, if we think about it, a parallel of this kind of American dream or this kind of myth of meritocracy that anybody can pull themselves up by your bootstraps, that you didn't have to be connected to the family of Suharto or connected into certain kind of government organizations. And Agim played into that, and his self-narrative was one of a self-made man. He grew up, his father was um, in the military for a while and then a gymnastics teacher. There's Hence the name Gymnastiar, comes from gymnastics. And it's with a hard G. I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah, so he was a gym, a gym kind of PE teacher and gymnastics instructor, and, and Agim was the oldest child. And so um, you have in this moment um, Agim really trying to show Indonesians, specifically Indonesian Muslims, that they can succeed, that success is both about material success in this life and rewards in the afterlife, in the akhirat. So maybe let me ask maybe Sinta... Um, 
so uh, born and raised in Indonesia. Um, when did you? When did Agim um, cross your cross your landscape? When did you come oh, aware? It was in 1992 when I graduated from high school. So I was uh, my uh, my high school is in East Java, and then I moved to West Java for uh, college, and that's when I hear about Agim. But I'm, I come from the from Madiun. It's especially where the communists a lot of them. <laughs> that's why I'm not very religious, so it doesn't appeal as much to me. Agim. But the but the uh, you you said you got taken to a or, or a friend brought you to a very early uh, my like, cousin. Okay, a lot of my cousin go to a game place to hear. The preaching and sometimes they do the, like physical training too. Yes. Yeah. Like like calisthenics, or uh, like, I, and I kind don't... of like almost a military yes. style yes. training. And so they would have even up until today they have an organization Santri Siapguna, where kind of the Islamic students who are ready to be of use um, in, hmm. in kind of in context of the national use and kind they, of this total body mind spirit. Uh, perfection. But with a militaristic kind okay. of inflection. And so they would wear fatigues and kind of camouflage. Yes. They would go into outbound training sessions. Um, some of this inspired by his own inner kind of experiences in a couple of Islamic schools in West Jaffa, where they would send them out, the Kiai or the religious teacher would send them out on their own to kind of go camping or survive. They have these kind of outbound experiences. And as Agim tells it, part of the religious kind of lesson was not to search for water, for example, if you were thirsty and kind of place your hopes in a river or a creek, but in a kind of nostalgic way, he would say that you need to place your hopes in the creator of water. And so that becomes kind of the, the basis theologically of his emphasis on Tawhid or this idea of the oneness of God. And many, you know, early in his career, although today I emphasize a lot of the points um, when he became famous, this is way in which he kind of represented a new form of softer Muslim masculinity that really resonated with the desires and the ideas of romantic love of Indonesian women. In his early career, as others have written, he was also, when he first started turning to Islam in Bandung, he was part of these groups who would go out and um, kind of raid the, the bars and the kind of different areas where they thought vice was going on. And so... And he will admit this, and people in the neighborhood where he grew up will say, yeah, he was one of those, you know, before he turned to religion, he was known as one of these kind of bad boys. But even even once he turned to religion, he was much more in the vein of people like Habib Razik, the leader of the Islamic Defenders Front, where he was where he was quite willing to to go around and kind of be a moral police. So give us a give us a sense of. Uh, kind of representative sample of if we if we if we're listening back in uh, in this his heyday, if we were listening to uh, again, what kind what would a what would a sermon be like? What would a what would the what would the experience be like? So if we come take it back to the 1980s, late 80s in Bandung, you have the Salman Mosque movement at ITB, the Institute of Technology Bandung, in which you had a kind of resurgence of this idea of Islamic training, and so one of the key leaders there who was eventually put into jail by Suharto during the New Order, he had this idea of kind of mental training exercises. And so in his early career, Agim was trying to be an entrepreneur by day and attend different kinds of religious lessons, Would that have been coded as, as Javanese or as Islamic, that mental training? That mental training was coded as Islamic. And so it was both rooted in Bandung, but also part of a broader transnational diaspora of Indonesians going abroad, many who came mm-hmm. to the U.S. for training, Others who were part of that movement were people like Haidar Bagir, who is now the president and CEO of Mizan Publishing. Um, others who have gone in different directions, such as his brother uh, Abidin Zainal Bagir, who now runs a fantastic master's program at Gajamada University. And so in the earliest stages, Agim, sure, he was talking about this idea of the heart. But really what made him popular in his earliest years in Bandung was this idea that he did kind of entrepreneur training. And he was reimagining an Islam in a, in a post-colonial context, he said, look, you know, the reason we were colonized was that we couldn't compete economically. And he envisioned a kind of broader global ummah or the kind of Muslim people that would reclaim their economic um, power in a sense. And so he did a lot on entrepreneur training. And, and part of this in terms of what he did bring to the tradition of um, the understanding of Islam in Indonesia 
was you start talking about the Prophet Muhammad, not in terms of the Prophet Muhammad after he's 40 years old and gets revelation and then helps spread Islam throughout um, the Middle East and, and Mediterranean, but the stories of the Prophet Muhammad when he was an orphaned young boy and would follow his uncle, Abu Talib, throughout the modern-day Middle East, especially contemporary Syria, on these caravans, and he learned how to be a business person. And so the way in which Aagim was thinking about Islamic business is he said, we have to take a page out of, of the Prophet Muhammad, who was known as Amin, or the trustworthy, before he was ever a prophet. Um, in fact, that title of the trustworthy is what made his first wife, Siti Khadija, who, who proposed to him, ask Muhammad to basically handle and manage a lot of her caravans and business affairs. And so Aagim at that time was trying to really work on entrepreneurship, and he had a kind of theory that God, within Islamic practice, but Aagim popularized this within Islamic theology, that God has ordained your fortune, but it's not a kind of fatalistic view on it, that you have to do what you can do to meet up with your fortune. And so in his early years, it was really that entrepreneurial message that resonated with people. And then as the years went on, and as he, especially after he gained national um, celebrity, or actually, sorry, let me stop for a moment. At that time, in the, in the kind of early 1990s, when he formally establishes his Islamic school, it wasn't the title that it is now, Darut Tawhid, or kind of the home of the oneness of God. It was Benkel Akhlaq. Now, Benkel Akhlaq is a kind of, Benkel is kind of like a garage or a kind of, um, a car maintenance shop. And so it was a very informal, it inflects it with a very informal sense of we're just here to kind of work on people's ethics. And part of that by that time was Aagim was focusing on the heart. And although he does not have extensive religious education or training, he did have experiences in, in different Islamic schools in West Jaffa with very well-known preachers who were very much involved and inspired by Sufism and Sufi thought about esoteric psychology, and the importance of the heart. And so Aagim falls back often um, as the basis of his self-help psychology management kalbu on a saying of the prophet that inside the body there's a piece of flesh. If that piece of flesh is pure, so too is the entire body. If it's soiled and corrupt, so too is the entire body, and that is the heart. And so it, that's is the heart. Is, the heart um, is it fair to translate? Um, is that being conceived of in the same way of kind of a... of the Western sense when we say the heart as a as a as a as an abstraction is is the heart is is that is it is it your emotions and behavior I mean I'm just uh, uh, are they using uh, are they using it differently than a Western audience might use heart or is it the same Yeah, I think the most helpful way to think about it and different scholars of Islamic studies um, have talked about the kalb as a as a moral organ and so the heart uh, Arabic for the heart is kalb. And so it's a moral organ that um, is not easily reducible to the heart and mind, cognition, emotion of the West, even though, of course, there are terms for rationality and, and emotion. But it's something that connects the different senses and connects us to our own religiosity and ultimately, in a Sufi sense, to the God that is manifest in each of us. Moral organ is a great band name, by the way. Um, yes, yeah. absolutely. Think, uh, Although just you, you'd have trouble playing in Saudi Arabia. I think. What the word that comes to my mind is intention. You know. Yes. The intention. And is whether or not your intentions are say more about that. Uh, I don't know that. So the intention is the important thing. Just your your. Yeah. Your so intention. so it's 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 your it's your it's your it's not just your actions, but they were you're yeah. doing it for the right reasons, mm -hmm. and you're and you want yeah. to do. Um, yeah, yeah, and that comes from this idea of the niyat, this yeah. intention being, in Aagim's case, this idea that you should have pure and sincere intentions. So this Islamic ethics of sincerity really comes into part of that. And so even within a kind of Islamic calculus of good deeds, there's this idea that even if you try to do a good deed, your intent was to do a good deed. If it doesn't come true, you still get yeah. kind of good deed points or almal points for okay. that intent. So yeah, and that's what is cultivated by a kind of pure heart. And then within a Sufi Islamic psychology, there's this idea of tazkiyah al-nafs, which is the kind of purification of the heart. And so for Aagim, to kind of get back to your question of what would his sermon look like, he would say, look, all of us have problems, but the problem that you're facing isn't really the problem. The problem 
is how are you facing that problem? How do you menghadapi masalah itu? How do you approach that problem with a kind of calm heart and with good intention? Or do you approach it with a kind of um, sense of frustration and, and imminent failure? So he 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 starts out kind of uh, his... Uh, this is blend of blending popular psychology um, uh, is sort of Islamic uh, and pop prosperity gospel, and then kind of a, a Sufi version of 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 the heart. Um, how does that translate into such uh, wild popularity? And and give us a scale for for how popular is Agim. Yeah, it's interesting in terms of, I'll answer the scale first. Um, Indonesia, for those who are not familiar with it, is a place in which, for the most part, even the most famous movie actors can walk relatively freely in the shopping malls. Not many people are going to stop them and ask for autographs. In the case of Agim, he would not have a chance, in the height of his popularity, of walking through a shopping mall. He would need bodyguards. He would, if he did it in a way in which he was going to be friendly with the people, he would probably take... 100 selfies with other people. Um, a lot of people would want to shake his hands, give him their cell phone number, etc. When I first started my field work in 2005, he often boasted a number of a popularity rating of 91% positive popularity rating in Indonesia, which at that time was well above the rating of President <laughs> SBY, who yeah. was even popular then. And really across religions as well. So I'd be in places like Medan, and as I was waiting for Agim's arrival, I was in a kind of market area that was in a kind of um, part of the Chinatown there, and there were Buddhists who, when I told them I was working with Agim, they said, oh, we love Agim. And in fact, on Sundays, we have his TV show playing in our store. Now, there can be several reasons for that, but he was really known in, in the early 2000s, in late 1990s, as being someone who could bring people across religious traditions together. And so he took a lot of scrutiny by preaching in a church when there was problems in central Sulawesi. And so people had their hopes in him as a kind of nationalist, as I kind of talk about him as a therapist in chief. Now, of course, over time, those those hopes were dashed by many people, but that's really where he was kind of coming in and wanted to present himself, not just as a Muslim leader, but as an Indonesian leader who could bring the kind of public ethics of Islam to bear on an Indonesia that was trying to go through a reform process. Cinta, can you give us a give us a sense of what was it like? Um, so you have a you have a, the long dictatorship uh, of Suharto, and then there's this there's 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 this moment there's this opening, and and you would have been like sort of at perfect age to kind of you know as a twenty something to really like get. I mean, or um, and I miss maybe you personally, but but. Those around you, what was that? That was there a sense, a sense of excitement, uh, of possibility, of what was that like in that I, moment after? 98? I think uh, he started at the, you know, uh, he has a like, what do you, the moment, momentum. Yeah. So that's the. I remember. So he, so he'd are before he he'd been starting and had momentum. So he, yeah. It, so the, in in the, I start uh, my. First, remember my first year of college. Uh, we are required to uh, have like Islamic training. All of the yeah, it, we cannot. You know, it's it's part of the program at the university. So yeah, uh, and the the year is uh, after the. Op- Suppression, oppression from the Suhartos. The uh, I remember when I was still in high school in the nineteen ninety one. Uh, we uh, we cannot wear veil, hmm. and then that time uh, after that the the rules changed, and then I think that's the year that everybody wants to you know to study Islam, and I think. This. It's yeah. the, his momentum, I think. Yeah, and it seems like I think that example is a really interesting one because people both wanted to appear Islamic, so you have this increase in the public display of piety, but also the the relaxing of the government restrictions on college campuses, among civil servants, etc. And then you have also a marketization of Islam and Islam becoming both cultural capital, political capital. 
and the opportunities. It's also that time when you have the relaxing of the veil uh, laws that you have Indonesian and Islamic fashion organizations come together, Shafira. You have Warda, which is now a halal cosmetics industry that or company that's even competing with global transnational companies like Unilever in Indonesia. And so uh, Agim was very smart and adept at tapping into the way in which Islam had become a kind of sign of a progressive, at that time, kind of clean, free of corruption way for uh-huh. Indonesia to move forward. And it worked for him both socially, but also this was when the idea of an Islamic television program would actually could actually take hold. You no longer had the state-run programs that monopolized the market. And at that time, as you're expanding to roughly you know, 10, maybe 12 national TV stations, um, each one of them, especially during Ramadan, for example, you have this idea of kuliyatu jumenet, or kind of seven-minute sermon, in the seven minutes right before the breaking of the fast— and Agim became the most sought-after preacher for those sessions and then also for kind of evening, um, kind of two-hour live sermons to kind of celebrate Ramadan. And that was really interesting because, you know, Agim could only really be on one station at a time. So then you had a whole wave of different pop preachers and celebrity preachers that came on um, kind of on the scene in large part because of the demand and because of that proliferation of, of media outlets. Uh, would it be fair to say that you were embedded with uh, Agim uh, for your research? Uh, what, so tell, tell us about, you've got a pretty interesting kind of uh, um, inside, inside access. Uh, what, what was it like? You know, it's interesting for anybody who's out there as a graduate student writing a prospectus. Um, <laughs> there's hope yet. Um, I had a fantastic, wonderful mentor at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and when I turned in my proposal for my dissertation research, um, part of that proposal and the methodology said, well, following the insights of the anthropologist George Marcus about multi-sided ethnography, my methodological strategy would be to get in with his inner circle and follow Agim around Indonesia to get a sense of how he interacted and, and, and really circulated among the religious, political, and financial elite, and then also to follow the thing, this, this concept of heart management or management kolbu to see globally, okay, where did this come from? Where did it go? And my advisor's comments at the time, God bless him, he said, okay, this all sounds great, but what makes you think you're going to be able to get in his inner circle? Um, (laughs) You are just a white guy coming over there in 2005, two years after Iraq, uh, the U.S. invaded Iraq. Uh, Again, one of his early public protests in 2003 was a die-in at the National Monument where roughly 10,000 people all at once fell and, and, and as if they had just died from the war. And he said, they'll probably suspect you of, of being CIA. And so when I got there, I, of course, the Indonesian thing to do would have been to have people connect me and introduce me to him. And I had, had worked up a couple of those introductions. But during the first couple of weeks, I was dealing with paperwork in Jakarta. He did have a couple of these live broadcast sermons during Ramadan, and I just showed up. And so one at um, Masjid Atin in um, Tamanini, he had this big outdoor presentation. It also featured other pop figures. So and this is where we think of Agim, not just his religion, but his religious entertainment, what he called da'wa-tainment, following off the Arabic word, Indonesian word, da'wa, <laughs> for proselytization. And so you had this singer, Opik, at the time, whose music was so popular. If you were in the shopping malls during Ramadan, you would all often hear his songs playing. You had Sulis, a young singer, um, female singer, who also played with Opik. And I watched all of this kind of stage theatrics. And at the end of it, um, he looks at me, gives me a thumbs up. Um, and I think I go to, to shake his hand, but he was clearly being mobbed. Luckily, he was on the stage, but everybody wanted to get in there. So he kind of waved and then left. It was late at night. The following night, they were taping another show for the following week. And I went also. It was raining, so it was indoors. And he looks at me and he says, oh, you've come back. He tells me in English. I said, oh, you know, I answer him in Indonesian. And But then it was late at night when it finished, and he had to go. 
So in the meantime, I had secured a room with the help of, of colleagues in the Fulbright Foundation. I had secured a room inside his Islamic complex. So there are many guest houses to, to okay. house all of the thousands of people that came there every week. And I had had a meeting that was going to be set up with him. And when I happened to move into my room, they were doing another live taping. And so I went to join this. And then he sees me um, again, like, of course. <laughs> Who is this CIA guy following me? <laughs> and afterwards, um, I just decided, you know, maybe I should just do the American thing and not wait for the, the invite yeah, yeah. or the, the, the connection or the introduction. And I went up to him. And what's interesting to think about how mediated he is, when I first went up to speak with him, somebody handed me a microphone. And then a TV camera was right in my face, and they were using it as footage for a reality TV show they were doing at that time called Assalamu Alaikum with Aagim. And I, at that time, I very briefly and concisely said, I'm here, I'm a graduate student, um, I'm here to learn about Islam, and in particular, management kolbu. And I didn't really include him as much as a kind of, I'm here to study you as a celebrity, and I said, and I was hoping, you know, with, and I used, I tried to use as much as I could at that time, very polite Indonesian language. Um, and I tried to say, if, if I would be invited to stay here, I would like to learn. So he says, come see me after the prayers. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen. It was a nice meeting, but then I went home and wasn't sure what the next step was. And then the next day, his brother-in-law comes to visit. And then somehow three weeks later, at the end of Ramadan, I find myself in an eight-car caravan with a police escort in front and a police escort in back <laughs> on vacation for Ramad at the end of Ramadan, Idul Fitri, Lebaran holidays with a agim. And we take a family vacation down to the coast of West Jaffa. <laughs> and I find myself in a sarong learning how to do salat, the prayers. And um, he, bring, he brought a huge truck with um, uh, kind of uh, movie screens where they could screen a film and then he had this great key, huge keyboard where they do a lot of karaoke. And so three weeks into my field work, having no idea how it was going to turn out, I'm in a sarong on the beach of West <laughs> on Java, South West Java, <laughs> on family vacation, being ordered to sing John Denver Country Roads. So that's... How'd it go? It, um, you know, he actually, he critiqued me. So I was trying to give a certain bit of a kind of a country twang to it. And for you him, from Texas. it was yeah. too kasar. It was too oh. unrefined. And he said, no, no, Jim, mm. that's not how we sing John Denver. <laughs> and then after that, you know, I think different people have asked me about how did you get access? Um, first, I have to admit that my privilege as a kind of white researcher from a foreign international institution had a lot to do with it. So not just any kind of um, researcher from Indonesia would be able to get that yeah. access. They would get, you know, directed to the human resource or uh, human uh, public relations office, and then they would get some data and information. And there's a lot of theses and, and other things written about him by Indonesians. Um, and then I tried slowly to ingratiate myself with his family and with the different people. And so we I was escorted around to meet people in every different division of his Islamic school. And in the end, I just chose a few different ones to, to work with. And I have to say they, they overall welcomed me with open arms, both at the time when Agim was at the height of his popularity. And to his credit, after he experienced difficulties, he didn't send me home. He said, look, this is also part of your research. Um, this will be good for your project. And he allowed me to see him not just at the height of his popularity, but also when he was down and out. And so for that, I'm, I'm grateful to him. Um, but I also do my job, at least I hope, as a, as, a, as a researcher in that I'm trying to get different sides and understand him. So I found myself going on the, with the advance team to different cities about one or two days ahead of him. And we would go to meet with the local people who invited him. And that's where I learned a lot, not just with him, but over who's fighting over who gets to sit next to Agim, who gets to sit two seats next to Agim. And so that insider dimension was certainly a big part of what I was able to get. Now, at the same time, I don't want to over-dramatize it. There's a long history in anthropology of scholars who say, oh, I came in and we were the best of friends and, and I found out everything and they didn't keep anything from me. Well, as it turns out, they sure kept things from me and, and kept things from other people in the community. So despite the closeness that I have and, and continue to keep good relations with him and his family and the, and the people at his Islamic school, um, there's always a little bit of distance. And in the end, I'm an outsider. I'm a non-Muslim. 
Um, but he wanted to invite me, as he says, to learn the beauty of Islam, not to convert me. And he would point to the a verse in the Quran that said there is no compulsion in religion. So that was part of it. And I think any anthropologist trying to do field work, that's what we hope to do is to get into some kind of um, insider role, um, but then also to understand the perspectives of other people who are around him. So I spent a lot of my time with him, but also um, I spent a lot of my time on the weekends with women who are waiting in line 30, 45 minutes to get their picture taken with him. So I tried to bring different perspectives to it. That was my that was my next question. Uh, one of the one of the real takeaways, and we'll 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 get to some of those challenges you alluded to. He had why was why was Agim so popular with women? It's interesting, Agim. So his as I have mentioned, his main tagline was kind of heart management or management kolbu. And when he would perform on stage, for example, when he would be be on live TV programs, the Sunday afternoon show. At the height of his popularity, at least according to the Nielsen ratings, it's roughly around 2003, actually. And on his Sunday afternoon show, he had roughly one-third of the viewing public was watching his show. Now, those kind of ratings are unbelievable. And so when he would be on this show, he was talking about the heart and talking about how to, to, to manage your heart, the mangandalikan prasan hati. And often what he would do is he, as I have argued he really resembled a kind of new emerging form of Muslim masculinity. And we see it in other pop culture figures. We see it in a recent genre of Islamic cinema, the kind of moral protagonists, especially the male figures who emerge. And on these shows, he, he basically marketed his own family and marketed the relationship and kind of told the narrative of his relationship and his, his marriage with his wife. And as so, kind of the ideal husband, the was, ideal father. The absolutely. Ideal, yeah. He presented himself as the ideal husband, a loyal and doting husband. So he would he would coyly look at his wife in the front row sitting dutifully, <laughs> and he would sing in English the Everly Brothers song, Let It Be Me. I, bl- I bless the day I found you. I want my arms around you. Now and forever, let it be me. And he did it very well. He doesn't speak English fluently. Um, he does better now than he used to, but... Um, he has this amazing ability, both with English and Arabic. He doesn't speak Arabic either, but certain key phrases that he memorizes in a very acute way, um, and he would sing these. And so part of his popularity, part of his religious authority came from this story he told about himself and his family. So, for example, when people would come to the Islamic school, he and his wife would do a kind of Q&A session with all of the spiritual tourists. They were part of a program called Wisata Rohani, um, separate from the corporate trainees who would come. And the women just adored it. He and his wife would be on stage. Oftentimes they would invite their youngest daughter at that time, and she would recite um, some some passages from the Quran and is, that she had memorized. And so she became part of the show. His wife became part of the show. And so in Indonesia, there's a, a kind of a genre of soap operas, very melodramatic, called Sinatron. And... Agim and his wife would perform that on stage, and so he would say something like, you know, oh, my beautiful wife, I every day thank God that he has given you to me, and please help me be that, you know, remind me if there's times when I have shortcomings, if I ever speak to you in too harsh of tones, <laughs> and then he would look to the men and say, see men, this is the importance of being lembut or being soft-hearted. And we must use two-way communication, do arah komunikasi. And then the women, of course, loved it because, by and large, uh, many of their husbands didn't live up to that ideal, at least as they explained it to me. And so they saw in A'agim the ideal husband, the ideal father. He was entrepreneur by day, religious teacher by night, and he had the perfect family, known in this kind of broader concept, made popular largely through Muhammadiyah circles, but this idea of the harmonious family, Kalwarga Sakina. And so he and his wife would appear in print media, for example. They had a kind of Q&A session for marriage and love. Let, let kind of, kind of a dear Abby, but dear A'agim and Tehnini, let us tell you how to explain, kind of answer your questions. And women would write in and say something like, I have an abusive husband, what should I do? And he would kind of give these answers. And so he really narrated this story of himself as, I am, I am the, the, I embody 
the very values and ideals of management kalbu, of heart management. And so there was a fantasy space between Agim and his female followers, his devotees, where um, part of that fantasy was them wanting their husbands to be like him. Part of that fantasy space that I have some data on, but it's a little more difficult to write about, is this fantasy space about Agim, the kind of romantic side of him. Um, that he expressed. And I think many women on a certain level really fell in love with Agim. Religious romantic. It's, yeah, he's a religious romantic. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you, Cinta, so what, what uh, um, I mean, you're wearing an Agim shirt right now, which is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> She's not. But um, for the for the people you know who were kind of taken with Agim, like what, what how did they, how, what, what was in it for them? What did they kind of, what did they love about it? Yeah, mostly what just said about Agim being a good husband. And then, but I don't remember anything about his preaching. What I remember the most is when he was going to take a second wife. <laughs> that he said that. He said to his wife. Uh, oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean uh, he said that uh, his wife is going to uh, experience like heart test from God, like that. Ah, this That's is just what. right. This is just God <laughs> testing, uh, yeah. testing my wife. Um, well, yeah, like so. So let's so let's get to that. so he's this he's this incredibly popular uh, preacher and heart manager uh, extraordinaire, and uh, then there's a fall. What what happens? So in I believe December first of two thousand six. On his way to preach his Thursday night sermon, he had walked it from his home to the mosque. He had it down. He was a very precise person. He knew how many steps it took him to get to the mosque. He knew how many seconds it took him to get to the mosque. Well, on this night, he did not get it right because he got stopped by a journalist with the tick.com, and they, they asked him, she asked him, and said, I have corroboration that you have married a second wife. Would you have any comment? And he spoke... That night on the radio, it's a nationally broadcast radio station. The question wasn't nationally broadcast, but he knew it was coming. And he knew that it was going to be put in the papers the next day. He alluded to it in a speech that night. And then he himself says that he tried to contact several editors of different papers to literally to to ram or to put the brakes on that story. And I myself experienced it. I knew there was something odd going on at the Islamic school. A couple of weeks prior, he had said a statement to the effect of it at the Monday morning employee meeting. He said something to the effect of, it's not lying if you don't tell people something that they don't have a right to know. <laughs> and another time, just a week before the news broke, I looked back through my field notes and his, he and his wife show up to that Q&A session, and his wife is sobbing uncontrollably. Hmm. And But she, the show had to go on. And he looks at her in a, in a not-so-loving way and says, you know, Knapa mogok begini? He says something to the effect of, how did you break down? Mogok is like when a car breaks down. Uh, how do you, you know, why are you breaking down like this? And this still wasn't public yet. And so I happened to be in Jakarta, not in Bandung when this happened, and Agim had given me a letter that any time I had to do bureaucratic work with Indonesian officials, I put this letter on top of all my paperwork. It basically said, um, Jim Hesteroy is a guest in our Islamic school. He has been of benefit to us, and we enjoy him as a guest. Please do anything you can to expedite whatever paperwork he has. And many of the women who worked in these offices, they, of course, knew right away that I was working with Agim. They would test me to see what kind of knowledge I really knew. They would want to get some gossip, even before the right. scandal. What's he really like? They would have me sing his famous song. So he had a famous song the inside story. called Jagala Hati, or <laughs> Take Care of Your Heart. And what was interesting, and this gives you a sense of just the sheer awe of the following by women. If he was in a stadium crowd of 20,000 people and he needed a drink of water, he would start singing the, the song and it goes, Jagalahati, Jangan Kau Kotori. Nah, ini dia. It says, take care of your heart, don't tarnish it. And then he would, when he wanted to take his women, he would put his hands up, motioning for the women to sing the refrain. And they would come back 
10, 15,000 strong, and they had memorized the mm-hmm. song. Women had this as their, as their ringtone, so much to the point where when I was doing field work and I was waiting in line with these women, somebody's phone would go off and it was that song. It would go, and every woman in line would check to see if it was their phone. Oh, wow. Because they all had the ringtone. So I walk into this office this day, and the women who were just admirers of Akim, very relative, I wouldn't say secular women, but you know, they did not wear the, the veil. And every time I was in there, they were so kind to me. And I was coming in. It was a dangerous time in the sense that it was a Friday morning, about 10.30 a.m., which means that within a half hour, every office was going to clear out for Friday prayers. And I needed to get this paperwork before I left back to go to Bandung on a train. And I walk into the office and they said, is it true? And I said, I'm sorry, is what true? And then she motioned to her friend out back. She said, bring the paper up here. And I thought, oh gosh, this is not going to go very quickly today. What's going on? And they slammed the newspaper down on the desk in front of me and they said, is it true? And I looked down and it was a tabloid paper. So not one of the more respected ones, but it was a tabloid and it showed a picture of Agim. And it said, Aagim berpoligami, like Aagim has taken a second wife. And on the picture next to him is a former or an employee at that time of Darut Tawhid, of his Islamic school, and actually a close friend of mine or a dear friend of my wife and I, and who had who spoke fluent English and had been a very kind person when my wife was visiting for the first time. And I looked at it. And then everything started to make sense of what I was feeling and sensing it. And I said, I don't know. I don't want to spread gossip, but I think it's probably true. And I said, let me go back. And, you know, by that point, they said, okay, here's my here's my cell number. You go back. And when you ask him, you tell us the truth. <laughs> and they were so offended. Yeah. And by that point, I went straight to the train station and I saw that it was in every newspaper, a lot of the newspapers. Then I was watching TV when I got back to Bandung. And I saw it had been on all these infotainment shows and the kind of morale at the Islamic school. Agim had left for Kuala Lumpur for a couple of days and everything, everyone was down, downtrodden and everyone was kind of lack of morale. The TV stations and the camera crews were chasing everybody around for a soundbite um, to try and get to the bottom of this. And so within the next day or two, Thousands of women took to the streets in front of the TV cameras, which were very eager. You know, the, everybody loves a good scandal and downfall in terms of um, newspapers, etc. And they started shredding his pictures. And now, again, one of the kind of gifts that people would buy when they went to his Islamic school and go home would be calendars with his face on it. Even a clock with his face on it. So there, you, you, there's lots of them in your book talks about multi-level marketing. There's a whole empire behind... He had a whole multi-level yeah. marketing firm specifically for mostly household goods. Now, this could include things like cleaners or honey in the kind of tradition of the prophet, but it also included halal cosmetics. And so most of the customers for this were women. So they took to the streets. They're shredding the pictures. You have a backlash from several politicians, including the president at that time, who had professed for a long time they were looked to be very chummy and very close and it was clear that this was going to become a scandal. Now, Agim, I think, in an element of hubris, thought he could handle it and thought he could manage it. And I have to say I'm a little bit sympathetic to the way in which his celebrity status made him think he was invincible. I was just somebody following him, and I was amazed at the celebrity status. Like you would go into a village with him, and in five minutes later, hundreds of villagers had heard that he was in, in town and would kind of be peering into the windows to catch a glimpse of Agim. And so I knew, and I'd been talking with all these women for the last year, and so I knew this was going to be bigger than he thought. And at the time, he told reporters, he said, you know, I'm not going to answer this. Um, I will deal with this and, and I will answer questions when I come back from the Hajj pilgrimage, which at that time would have been four to six weeks later. And it was clear that that was not going to happen, um, that people were not going to stop the story, that it was gonna getting even bigger. And so uh, several of his media consultants and close advisors said, you know, I think you need to try and manage this now. Get out in front of this. Get out in front of it or as much as you can. And so he came back to Jakarta, and in their Jakarta office, they did a press conference. And he starts off, and in the next several days, once he admitted this, he tried several different explanations, which, you know, I'll let the, the 
the viewers or kind of listeners decide which one they, they buy, if any. And at first he said, and at the press conference he says, why is it that in Indonesia the word polygamy has such a negative connotation when we know that in the Quran it is permissible? So have you, have my followers idolized me to the point in which they will um, go against the word of the Quran? And so here you have somewhat of a, I think of as a kind of theological blackmail <laughs> of if you were a real Muslim, yeah. you wouldn't be angry with this. And then at sometimes he would say, look, and when he when he talked to um, to his own community, community, he said, no one loves my wife more than me. And here in this moment, he was sobbing, um, I think very genuine tears. He says, no one loved me, my wife more than me. No one wants her to be a bidadari, an angel in heaven more than me. Um, and this is where it turns. And then he says, I'm worried that she adored me too much and loves me too much that she's, wow. I'm going to take her, it's going to take her away from her her kind of compass towards God. And then another explanation he tried to give people at different moments. I, I just got diabetes from that sugar, <laughs> that syrup of that, wow. <laughs> he also, in another context, said... context he tried to explain it in terms of innate gender differences and so he would say you know the women and men have different hardwire they're hardwired differently that men have a sexual passion that doesn't go away and so he will ask then what he did and this is just a week after the the news broke there were women who were at his islamic school and he would say let me get a show of hands any of you women are you in your 60s or 70s now for how many of you um how many of you does the, the thought of a kind of young, handsome, muscular, 20, 30-year-old sound good to you? And of course, like, in terms of the propriety of it, no one's going to raise their hand. Um, but then he asked the men, and how many of you, if you were 70, the idea of a 20 <laughs> yeah. or 30-year-old woman sounds good? And of course, they raise their hand. And that's when he begins to tell a joke that before the polygamy scandal, he was the idol of all women, and then now he's the idol of all men. And then returning to that, to the press conference... He brought his wife out and he said, look, the reason we didn't tell anybody, and that's part of the story and part of the, his downfall is that he kept it secret for at least three months. One of the journalists thinks it was longer. I don't have independent proof that it was longer. And so he said, you know, I needed to get my team ready. And he put it in terms of a soccer team. And his wife was having a very, his first wife was having a lot of difficulty with this. She fainted on a couple occasions. She was taken to the hospital. Um, she reportedly was was very depressed about this, and from my own assessment, I would say that's very accurate. And and he brought her out, and part of the reason he brought her out was to make a public statement that yes, she gave permission for this, and that this wasn't some kind of secretive thing that she didn't even know about. So she comes out and she says, "Yes, I gave permission, and I was sincere in in my heart when I did this." And the moment she says "sincere," a teardrop rolls down her cheek. And if you know anything about Indonesian kind of infotainment gossip shows, that is the moment they pounced on. And so rather than making the story go away, it gave fuel to the flames of the story. And for weeks on end, the cameras would do a very super close-up on her tears and a very melodramatic voice would kind of sound like this, would say, So, Tehnini says that she gave permission with a sincere heart. (laughs) But then when she's saying this, a tear rolls down her cheek. Zoom in, zoom out. Zoom in, zoom out. (laughs) Right, right. Very quickly. So which is true? What Mm. do you believe? And then they'd ask women. Within several weeks, there were books out there. (laughs) Imagine if I were the wife of Agim. And so in print media, on TV, he was taking a killing. And especially after that moment. And it's, it's important that it was when she was saying sincere. Because as I've written in the book, I think... The main argument that his female followers, his devotees, had against it was not a theological statement that they are against polygamy per se, even though they may not want their husband to marry again. Many of them, if I ask them, do you think within Islam polygamy is permissible? 
And they would say, yes, it's permissible, although perhaps not not advised. Um, different, more progressive, liberal-leaning feminist theologians would argue that it's actually not permissible if they, they have a different reading of that passage of the Quran. Um, but most women would say it's not about polygamy. It's about Agim's polygamy because he is insincere. He preached an insincere way. He preached about a family harmony that was all just a hoax. Now, I'm not going to say his family harmony was a hoax, but the sentiment of betrayal, and this gets to the point of the way in which he built his economic empire wasn't just about economic exchange relationships with devotees. It was more about an emotional relationship that fueled consumption. And so that's the kind of fantasy space between women and Agim and, you know, after this, when I would see women in, in in public even, for example, if I was in a shopping mall in Jakarta once and I you know they had no idea that I had anything to do with Agim, I would say, oh, you know, I see you're looking at this this um, video of this preacher, for example, Yusuf Mansur at the time. Um, I said, oh, you know, would you like to look at this one of Agim? And they would just, oh, no way, that's scoundrel. <laughs> Uh, one of our uh, uh, Indonesian graduate students here was talking about his mother, who was uh, uh, like loved Agim, just turned on a dime. And uh, was would, did you know any f- friends or or uh, uh, people around you that um, uh, liked Agim? And then how did they respond? How did those women respond? Yeah, the whole family, my whole family, in that live in Bandung, they love uh, Agim, but then. Especially older, my aunts. Uh-huh. Uh, sort of older sister. generation, slightly. Yeah. 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 And my, my female uh, cousins. But then after this, they they don't listen to the argument anymore. It was pretty quick, too. The yeah. kind of immediate yeah. <laughs> judgment. Yes. Yeah. And if you look at the difference in his own Islamic school right after that, literally the day after this news broke, um, the people in his secretariat were really worrying, and this is how the morale started going very low. It's not just the public um, news reports. It's that whole groups of women were canceling their trips. And so they used to come by busloads, these kind of Islamic kind of Quranic study groups from all over Indonesia. If they had more money, they would often fly, but most of them came by bus or cars, and unless, of course, they were coming from another island um, other than Jaffa, although some from from Sumatra would go by ferry, um, and they started canceling their their trips. The other kinds of corporate training um, for at least a while. The other companies that were doing corporate training. Part of the reason they chose Agim's training over some of the other corporate training possibilities, such as Ariganjar's ESQ or some others at the time, was because of Agim's celebrity status. People wanted to see them. They wanted to be in his orbit. And after that happened, there was a, another period where their, the clients of their corporate trainees really started to dry up for a while. And literally overnight, you could see the difference. His own neighborhood was getting angry with him because – and he felt ever since the day I arrived there, he was angry and frustrated that people said, you know, if Aagim's not here in the city or in Bandung, then nobody's going to be here. They only come here if he's here. And his advisors had already said, look – the personal brand of Aagim, and this is their language, not mine. The personal brand of Aagim had become too closely aligned with the corporate brand of management Kolbu, such that if he fell as a figure, the, you know, they knew everything rested on his the brand. The whole thing unraveled, yeah. The whole thing unravels. And because his own business empire was a vertical integration model, and by that I mean the corporate trainees come in, their meals are served by the, the restaurant that he owns, their cleaning and, and the sheets are... Um, are washed at the laundromat that he runs. They stayed oftentimes, especially the corporate trainees, in the guest houses that he owned. Now, others you know, in the neighborhood also had guest houses. The souvenir shops that were all around there, within months, the most popular souvenir shop on the corner, right next to his house, um, closed down. And then it opened up. The first shop, I believe, that came in was a, a shoe shop. And so... You know, from all different angles, he also had these kind of joint ventures with a lot of people who would sell food and different kinds of items inside the complex. So he would give them some capital and he would take some of the profits. Within weeks, they were all gone. And that whole center of the inside of the complex, um, nobody was selling and nobody was really coming there. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine for the 
his his followers, his the community that that uh, that gap is not one that that uh, can, can quickly be closed. Um, he was he was countered out by by many, and uh, as you sort of talked about today, um, that may have been uh, premature because Agim has uh, uh, has made a bit of a comeback of late. Give us a give us a thumbnail of what that looks like. Yeah, you know, it's interesting for me looking at this in hindsight. Um, as with many people, when they write one book and they move on to other research, they think they're done with it. Then I, I still stay in touch with Agim, and I, of course, followed him on the on the scale. And you know, I finished the actual writing of my book in late um, late twenty fourteen, and so he had already started to make a rise. But you know, even going back to his downfall, one of my dear friends, an Indonesian uh, anthropologist. I got a text message from him after the polygamy debacle, and he said, hey, Jim, pack your bags because your project's over. No. <laughs> and I replied to him, I said, oh, bang fajar. <laughs> I said, my research has just begun because now we have to chart the unraveling of Agim right. and the, the way in which he tried to come back. And in some ways, he tried to, to come back very quickly and very early. He tried to show that... Um, the relationship between his two wives was a very harmonious one, even though most people in those close circles knew that it was far from harmonious, um, but that this was part of the kind of marketing campaign to control the image. He also, as I mentioned earlier, tried different explanations. He found himself very, um, he found himself defended at this time by kind of key conservative-leaning Islamic figures and politicians. One of them, Hidayat Nurwahid, who was with the PK, uh, PKS party, the Prosperous Justice Party, an Islamist-leaning political party inspired by the Muslim Brotherhood. Another one was Din Samsudin, who at the time was both the head of Muhammadiyah and the head of the Indonesian Council of Ulama. Now, Din Samsudin has his own, some have said, checkered history, especially during the, the New Order period. Um, but these people came to his defense and so I think that really, on a gut level, he wanted to stay allied to those who stayed with him. Now, despite my friend's admonition that my project was over, a colleague of mine who's a, a brilliant marketer, um, he's with the Indonesian marketing firm Mark Plus, um, and he has an encyclopedic mind. And I said, I said, Pak Taufik, what do you think? Do you think he's done? And he said, no. He said, now, for the next few years, sure, he's going to have to lay low and he's going to, you know, going to have to kind of stay out of the limelight a bit. But eventually he's going to be able to rebrand himself and it's going to depend on the context of Indonesia. Um, but he would make a comeback. And so that's really what we've witnessed. Everybody that, that counted him out um, really now has to come up with a different explanation. Now, there's a, a very big difference in terms of the Agim of today. Now, he's back on TV. He has his own TV station again. The financial difficulties that he once had have looks like they've largely passed. He had a, a friend of his, another preacher, Yusuf Mansur, who helped bail him out in terms of buying up properties that were in financial jeopardy. But he really made a comeback. Now, I want to stress that not only Agim, I don't think, could ever be like the same young, exuberant, popular preacher he was when he became famous at the national level in the early 2000s. Um, Indonesia is a different place. That kind of moment of hope and optimism and the idea of this kind of new public figure emerging. And of course, there had been other popular preachers. Zainud Nemzed is perhaps the, the most kind of recent precursor to Agim, but none was really like Agim. And certainly his comeback has not meant that women are flocking to him again and buying up his management kolbu routine. But what they are doing, and he's kind of shifted his own footing to one of an emphasis on tawhid, an emphasis more ironically on jurisprudence, on a more strict interpretation of the Quran. Now, he was always conservative-leaning. He was always... Um, interested in pushing a very conservative political agenda, as I write in the book, in terms of the way in which he tried to parlay his media pulpit into political capital during the anti-pornography campaign. But some of those soft edges, maybe, were, were the, the, his emphasis on the heart. I yeah, guess, his is, emphasis on the heart softened. Yeah. And so now what was interesting was he was back kind of in the limelight, and this was a slow process. It started several years after his downfall. There were TV shows on various channels such as the metamorphosis of Agim or nostalgia for Agim 
Um, now, some of these TV channels, you know, if we took a cynical view, one of the ones he's really emerged on has been MNC TV, which is known as first Islamic programming, TV One, um, also owned by the Bakri family and operated in large part, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, by Anandia Bakri, the son of of Abu Rizal Bakri, who was also for a long time a friend of Aagim, but someone who wanted to capitalize on the hipness of Aagim, the celebrity status of Aagim. You know, I saw Bakri a couple of years after that in L.A. at an Indonesian Diaspora Congress, and um, I asked him about Aagim, and it's as if he had never seen, hadn't seen him in years. So, you know, in many ways, I think he was one of the people who moved away from him. But at the same time, Aagim was shrewd enough to keep those financial and political elite to whatever extent he could, in his orbit again, and to re-enter their orbits. And so it's not surprising to me that all of these TV1 talk shows, such as the Indonesia Lawyers Club or some others that feature the religious elite and political elite, that they now call on Agim as a member. Um, I think the 2014 election campaign between um, Joko Widodo or Jokowi and um, Prabowo Subianto was also a key moment in his more recent transformation. He, during his height of his popularity, he refused to show public allegiance to any political party. Um, even in the, the kind of first elections, one of his first TV shows was basically, it was kind of a political show, but he was a very neutral voice. Now that all stopped. And he was very vehement and adamant that I am a supporter of Prabowo. Now, some of this is also along kind of... Um, ethnic and religious lines, as I mentioned in the talk today, he equated a vote for Jokowi as a vote for the Christian ethnic Chinese governor or vice governor of Jakarta at that time, Ahok, saying, look, if you vote Jokowi as president, that means you're voting a non-Muslim to be the governor of Jakarta. And so he really was starting to be polarizing in that sense. But he enjoyed returning and, and kind of going back into these circles. So, for example, when Prabowo and his partner, Hatta Rajasa, um, who was the vice presidential candidate, the day that they submitted their official candidacy to the election commission, they did. Uh, they invited Ha'agim to give the sermon to kind of commemorate the moment in the mosque right beside that building. He appeared in other... other not insignificant. Yeah. Not <laughs> insignificant. And he appeared in other domains with Prabowo. Um, and other leaders in the, that kind of what we now think of as a kind of more far-right, very conservative political Islam in Indonesia. And so he was not afraid to kind of show, in a sense, what I think all along were his true colors. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean that he had masked some of that as, as, a, as a kind of overt marketing campaign. Why enter politics if it's going to break up your own following? So for years, his advisor said, look, you can do. You can stay popular as long as you want, as long as you don't do the two P's, polygamy or politics. Well, <laughs> I think it. <laughs> and both. Yeah, and then both. he's done both. And I think the reason he did polygamy actually was he had decided not to enter politics, which was on his radar in, in 2006. Wow, that's a uh, that's incredible. I mean, who's who's to say uh, if he if he had not. Uh, um, if he had stayed the, this kind of mass following, this you, you know, you think about like the the way the American um, some on the left were just gaga over the possibility of an Oprah presidency. You know, like even the thought of it was like uh, that. Uh, Gim had probably much uh, much higher likelihood uh, than that fantasy had he uh, had he, yeah. Who who knows? You I think, think so. I think in two thousand six, and I don't have definite proof of this. I know from conversations that he had been courted by several different political parties. Um, my guess is it would have been one of two relatively Islamic-leaning political parties who the rumor at that time was that they were considering him as a vice presidential candidate. Oh, yeah. So, you know, there's many different kinds of ways to think about the makeup of, of president and vice president. One could be Javanese. One has to be non-Javanese. One has to be Islamic, give you Islamic credentials, while the other can appeal to a kind of more PDIP kind of nationalist base. Yeah, and so yeah. there's ways of thinking, how, what, how does one candidate balance out the other? And I think he decided not to pursue those options. I mean, he told us in a, in a, in a meeting with his close advisors, the executive board at his, at his Islamic school, that I've decided not to enter politics. And I think that's when he made the decision for polygamy, roughly around that same time. It's definitely when he made the decision. 
I don't know to what extent they were connected. Well, now he finds himself in a position where he's um, inserted himself very shrewdly into these national political debates, the most recent one being this um, blasphemy controversy where the um, then governor of Jakarta, who goes by the name Ahok, um, he had made a statement um, kind of referring to the passage of um, Al-Ma'ida 51 in the Quran that um, he says, look, something to this effect. Don't be fooled by those ulama with political intentions who will use the Quran to say that you can't vote for a certain candidate. Now, this this video was heavily edited and then went viral on social media and, and launched, kind of gave the moment for many of these Islamists and others who weren't even Islamists. I mean, if you think about Prabowo and the people he was funding, if you think about um, the, the now governor, Anis Baswedan, the way in which they absolutely used this as a way to gain a political following and to discredit Ahok, who most people in Jakarta were, I don't want to say most people, many in Jakarta liked his policies. There were many critics about some of the kind of areas that he he kind of threw out, many of the poor people in different areas. So he wasn't without controversy. He was also known as being a little too, in the Indonesian word, bikasad, like a little too unrefined in his speech. He didn't have the kind of courtly, calm, Javanese disposition that Agim has in a, in a Sundanese variety. Um, and Agim, I think, saw this as a moment to kind of show solidarity, but also to, to reinsert himself in the circle of elite politics. Well, hey, I want to I want to thank you, Jim, for for joining us, uh, and uh, and Santa also for 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 chiming in. Um, yeah, what's what's uh, what's coming down the what's coming down the pipeline? Uh, any anything you want to plug? Oh, well, your program in Emory. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you. Um, well, I think what's coming down the pipeline, what's going to be interesting for all of us to f- to follow, is where these next election cycles go. For me personally, what the role of Agim is going to be in this. Although I have to say, um, in a large part, I've moved on to to other research projects, largely still along the lines of Islam in Indonesia, but looking at the way in which Indonesian diplomats, in particular the Ministry of Foreign uh, Foreign Affairs, has tried to promote the idea of Indonesia as the home of moderate Islam, both abroad, but now more recently the way other groups and Islamic organizations such as NU have tried to promote this idea of an Indonesian Islam. Um, and that has been certainly had has its own element of controversy, both domestically and abroad, in terms of how can we understand Islam, how do we understand the compatibility of Islam and democracy in a moment when places like Turkey have gone, you know, taken a turn for the worse? Um, and for me, it's an exciting time to be kind of following all of this. And um, so for my next book project, that's what I'm going to be writing about. I've done most of the field work on it, and I'm, um, it kind of brings you into different circles. But I have to say, um, Agim is often you know, used, it's certainly at the height of his popularity is this symbol of a moderate Islam. And so I'd like to kind of take take that phrase and, and make it a little more critical perspective on it, but also look at it from the position within Islam at this kind of idea, not of moderate Islam as a phrase projected outward from the West, but one that kind of also has roots in, within Islam around the concepts of wasatiya. So um, that, even more than Agim at the moment, is what's kind of taken my own interest and curiosities, although um, certainly for professional and personal reasons, I'll continue to follow the saga of Agim. So thank you for having me. Yeah, here. we'll come, uh, come back again, and uh, we'll talk about that project. Thank and, and uh, okay, bye-bye. Crossroads would like to thank Joe Kinzer for today's music and the GV for production assistance. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.